This is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Like a song forgotten until the melody is suddenly renewed and all the lyrics are coming back to me now. I breathe it in. I sing the chorus listening to its echo fill these halls and even rooms that had long ago been shut. From the poem Houses written by me, K.B. Marie, and this is the true story of who killed my mother. My mother's body is still in the medical examiner's freezer when Katie asks me about her estate. She doesn't have anything, I tell her. Review with her the list of meager possessions I wish Joe would send, and know he will not. My stories, books, photographs, the cross necklace. But there's no car, nothing that can be called an asset. There was her dog, Biscuit, but it was taken along with the other two, Willow and Stella, to animal control the same day Joe was arrested and her body was carted off to the morgue. If she has anything, it's probably dead, I say. Let me do a search. You never know, Katie offers. Not long after, she texts me with the single, ominous, uh, uh, what? A second text comes through. For a moment, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. The words, map and parcel. My mother's address. Then my grandmother's name and mother's name printed beside current owner. What is this? I ask her. What am I looking at? It's the property record for the house. But it's only Nana's name and my mom's name. I sound more than a little dumbstruck, even to myself. Where's Joe's name? She sends a second text with a quit-claim deed from 2008, where Joe did, quote, hereby bargain, sell, remise, and convey all of his interest in the estate to my grandmother. Am I reading this right? I ask her. Does this house belong to my mom? Oh my god, is this my house? Two seconds ago, I was lamenting not getting a box of photographs, and now I have to deal with the real possibility that my mother has an actual estate which I have to actually resolve. I've heard horror stories about probates and lawyer fees, how it can take years to settle in the courts before everything gets squared away. Nothing about this sounds appealing to me. But if you sell this house, you can pay off your student loans, my wife reminds me. Ah the tempting glimmer of hope, until I remember the mortgage. Wait, 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 I don't think they've paid the mortgage after my grandmother died, I say, 
Does that mean it's my mortgage now? Am I defaulting on a mortgage right now? It takes a few minutes more to search the property record to find that the property taxes have been paid by a bank in Michigan, probably from an escrow account. I take down their name and number, and after making a sandwich, I give them a call. I try to explain who I am, the situation with the house, with my uncle, but they can't tell me anything about the mortgage. It's in my grandmother's name, and my Uncle Joe is the only listed contact point. But she's dead, I tell them. She's not going to pay for anything, and he might not leave jail for years. Yes, ma'am, if that's true, if you do in fact inherit this house, you will need to make a payment on it in order to keep the loan from defaulting. A payment? You haven't even told me what the payments are. Are you saying I can pay anything? A hundred dollars? Five hundred dollars? No, ma'am, you have to make a full payment. And a full payment would be, I ask. But I met with only silence on the line. I take a deep breath. All right. What do I have to do to gain access to this account? We need death certificates for your grandmother and mother, or if the court appoints you as the executor of the estate, we can tell you the information then. Or maybe you will find a bill and account information will be on that. If I find a bill. As if I'm going to drive from Michigan to Tennessee in the middle of a pandemic and root around in a drug house to look for it. A new possibility shivers through me. And would this bill show how much is owed and what the minimum payment is? I ask. Yes, ma'am. I try to imagine returning to the house I hadn't seen since I drove away in 2005 leaving my mother at the end of the driveway with her garbage bag of clothes and all my dreams of a fresh start dashed like a bottle on the concrete. I look at the property record photo again, then at Zillow and Google Maps. The latest photo of the house was taken by Google in March of 2019, within weeks of my mother being strangled. And the house is how I remember it. A single-story brick ranch house with its white door and shutters. In the photo... The front door is open, and I strain to see inside for maybe a face or a glimpse of my mother smoking a cigarette, but it's only streaked blue light, the bright sky reflected in the glass. The maple tree I loved to climb as a child stands proudly erect in front, though its limbs are still bare from winter. I remember tumbling down the slope, rolling and laughing until I collided with the ditch. I picked sickly sweet purple irises from along the roadside. I recall how when the hard summer rains came, I would run out into the storm, singing, twirling with my arms out, splashing in the puddles and howling like a wolf, until my exasperated grandmother would come out with a towel and drag me inside. There is one difference in the photo, one variant from my memories. Behind the house, there is a three-car garage, complete with an apartment above, with a large concrete driveway and patio stretching between. One of the garage doors is missing in the photo, and in its place hangs a silver tarp. What the hell happened to the garage door? I wonder aloud. To Katie, I say, what the hell am I going to do with this house? I don't know what kind of condition it's in, if there's drugs in there. God, of all the things to inherit, I get a drugged in. What am I supposed to do with a drug den? Where do I even start? To which she says, this is what lawyers are for.
Someone recommends Avo to me. If you haven't heard of it, it is a website where you put in the type of lawyer you need, in this case, probate, and the zip code of where you need them. I do a search and settle on a well-reviewed guy in the Nashville area. I leave a message with his assistant, and he calls me back the next day. I tell him my situation, and he has questions. Don't we all? So this was your grandmother's house, he repeats, but she died in March. Right, that's correct. And she had two children, your mother and your uncle, that were living in the house with her. Yes, but they didn't file the probate for the estate in the four months between your grandmother's death and your mother's. Is that strange? I ask. Not unheard of, no, he tells me, but it means that we will have to file probate for both your mother and your grandmother in order to get the house transferred to you and Joe. Me and Joe. The lawyer proceeds to explain that when my grandmother died, if she didn't have a will, her estate would have been split 50-50 between her surviving children. Since my mother died, that means I get her half. I would wonder later if Joe overlooked this detail, if he'd hoped that with my mother out of the way, he would gain the house without contest. But his name isn't on the property, I tell him. It's only my mother's name. The idea of having to work with Joe, to collaborate with him for any reason at all, oh God. In that case, it would mean the house would be 75% yours and 25% his, because the home was jointly owned between your grandmother and mother, and he would have inherited half of your grandmother's half when she died. Either way, he still has a claim. It's just a matter of how much of a claim. I don't want to work with him, I say, and I know I must sound like a spoiled brat. I try to backpedal. Sorry, but you just don't understand. I try to explain about Joe being in jail. Try to explain that Joe is violent, unpredictable, that he can't be trusted. Try to outline that even if he wasn't in jail, there would be no going over there and talking to him. No signatures and signing papers and working it all through. I don't want to go to court and sit beside him. There wasn't a house in the world I would go through the trouble of that for. What the probate lawyer thought of all of this, I don't know. He probably dismissed me as a hysterical woman, I'm sure. You could always walk away, my wife tells me. And other friends tell me the same. They argue that the ordeal of the two years it might take to finish probate, two years of talking to Joe, working with Joe, that none of it would be worth the minimal financial payoff. One friend went so far as to ask, what is the price of your peace of mind exactly? And when I said priceless, she said, well, then let the damn house go. And yet I found myself digging in. I found myself thinking Joe didn't deserve that house. That if he really killed my mother over money, over the property he stood to inherit, then no, he shouldn't get to keep it. His plan should completely and totally fail. I couldn't save my mother, but I wanted to at least abort his greedy and manipulative plans. Of course, this still left me with a matter of the looming mortgage. Now that I'd made the mistake of calling the bank and telling them that I stood to inherit this house, that Joe would remain in jail for the indeterminate future, they had a new target. Every two or three days, I would get a call. They would ask me for an update, press me for a payment which I kept politely refusing. I told them I couldn't make a payment if I didn't know how much to make a payment for. What I needed was to find out what was owed what the payment was, and how much of a debt was left on the mortgage. If the mortgage was huge, if it was more than the house was even worth, 
I'd be happy to walk away. I'm sure there's a bill in the mailbox, Katie tells me, or at least in the house. But that means going into the house, I say. A tremor runs through me and I can't tell if it's excitement or fear. I don't know that I can do that. Why? She asks me. It's your house. But not really. It hadn't been my house since I was a child. I hadn't been inside since 2001 for my grandfather's funeral. I tell Katie about the videos on YouTube that show you how to wedge a screwdriver under a sliding glass door and pop it off its track. I imagine us trying to do this in broad daylight without having a heart attack. I've never broken into anything before. Okay, fine, this is a lie. I broke into the public pool once with some friends so that I could skinny dip with this guy I had a crush on at the time. What can I say? I wasn't great at risk assessment. But I am an adult now, and jail is a real thing. Katie is way ahead of me. She's already making a shared checklist in Trello. She's got two lists, actually. One of what we need from the house, the mortgage documents, my grandmother's death certificate, important papers like my mom's health records, social security number, pictures, photos, and the necklace if we can find it. She's also written down that I need to grab the self-addressed envelopes I'd sent my mom because she'd only written me back once, but I had sent five, which means that there were still four in the house, and I would rather not have my address printed so plainly from my Uncle Joe. And on the second list is what we needed to bring to the house to accomplish the search. Gloves, masks, packing boxes, my birth certificate, my marriage license, my ID, and a flathead screwdriver. Surely there's an easier way to do this. I called Detective Barnes and asked him if they locked the house when they took my uncle away. Because best case scenario, it's unlocked and I can just walk in. That would make it all so much easier. Unfortunately, Detective Barnes confirms that they locked it up when they left. That the only set of keys to the house would be in the county lockup with Joe's possessions. And I would have to ask Joe to give me the keys. And he would have to give me permission to have them. Well, that's not happening. So I explained to the detective what I found out about the house, what I'm trying to do with my mother's estate. It sounds like a civil matter, he says to me, which I take as a polite way of telling me that he doesn't have the time to deal with this. But then he surprises me by adding, You may be able to get a locksmith to let you in if you show them your mother's death certificate and explain your situation. A locksmith. Now this sounds like a viable option. And after a few calls, I find one in the area who says that if I can show them a certificate and my ID and paperwork proving I'm my mother's daughter and my mother is dead, that he'd be happy to let me into the house. That still leaves me with the problem of traveling during a pandemic. It's not ideal. But if I do it, it'll give me a chance to pick up my mother's remains and to find the mortgage information, to go through her personal effects, and box up what I wanted to keep for myself. All of this is very tempting, except my wife is working long hours now that her teaching job has moved online. But that's okay. Katie volunteers to go with me every step of the way. Whether we use a locksmith or a screwdriver, she's in. In the weeks that follow, I go through the motions of filling out probate paperwork fielding calls from the lawyer, and maniacally refreshing Joe's court record, confirming again and again that his court date isn't until August 5th, that the charges against him haven't changed, 
and that I have the time to properly plan for and prepare for this trip. I also think a lot about my grandmother's house. I had loved living in that house, mostly because I loved my grandmother, but also because it was the most stable home I had known by the time I was four years old. My grandparents had purchased that brick ranch house in the 70s, and the interior was fascinating. The kitchen was wood paneling and yellow appliances, but the front room, the sitting room slash dining room, had Grecian statues and glass china cabinets and enough plants to give the impression of a forest. My grandmother had an aloe plant in particular that I loved. It was so old, so grotesquely large that it looked like something out of Jurassic Park. My bedroom was in the back, in the northeast corner, next to theirs. It was overrun with stuffed animals and art supplies, books of all kinds. On most days, my grandmother would shove me outside in the morning and not call me in until lunch. I would run around in the creek beds through our neighborhood, or I would play with the little girls down the street who had two Great Danes as big as horses, and when they got bored of me, I would spend the rest of the day climbing trees, picking flowers, or rolling around in the dirt. Now that I think about it, no wonder I have such a great imagination. I literally played with dirt for hours every day. But one of my favorite non-dirt activities was to go with my grandmother down to the Salvation Army store, which smelled strangely of plastic and old lady perfume. When there, I would search the bins for new books, which I would buy as long as they were a quarter or less than I could get up to four. My Salvation Army store budget was $1, so I could get as many as 10 books if I was careful. Treasures found, arms full, I'd come home and flop down on my rainbow bright bed sheets and shove away the mound of stuffed animals so I would have a surface for all that reading. I had never known her to have a job, but as she peeled the skin off of my apples and salted the slices for me to eat, she would tell me stories about how she'd gone to cosmetology school and how she liked it, until my grandfather, in a jealous rage, had driven her car into the river with her cosmetology kit still inside, all the scissors and combs and things she needed to do her job now lost to the water. And that had been that. And she might not have had a job, but she was very active in her church. And somehow she'd become a visiting pastor, traveling around and giving sermons at other churches, her favorite kind of church was the holy rolling kind, the Pentecostals who would jump up and run around the church, forming a sort of frenzied Congo line. For me, this was unfortunate, because I always had to go with her and I'm a little bit lazy. So I didn't exactly want to run around in circles, shaking my hands above my head, wailing hallelujah. But I had the perfect plan for avoiding this. There was always a part early in the sermon or someone could come up and be healed, or they could have a one-on-one -on -one experience with the Holy Spirit. The pastor would call out, Is there anybody here tonight that wants to be touched by the hand of God? Who wants to feel the Holy Spirit running through them? I would hop up immediately and get in line, sometimes feeling my grandmother make a desperate swipe for the big bow on the back of my dress, knowing full well what I was up to but she couldn't try too hard or everyone would know she didn't want me to feel the Holy Spirit, and so it was pretty easy for me to squirm past. Once I got to the front of the line, the pastor would call out, Sweet Jesus, do you want to move through this child tonight? Do you want to work your Holy Spirit through her? I really hoped the answer was yes, because the alternative was to go back and sit beside my grandmother, whose eyes I could feel burning holes in the back of my head. 
At this point, there'd either be a bit of speaking in tongues or a hallelujah before he reached out and struck me in the forehead. And this was my cue. I'd go stiff-legged and fall straight back, thus demonstrating to my grandmother and everyone else in the congregation that I had been so full of the Holy Spirit, it had rendered me unconscious. Of course, I couldn't do this if my grandmother was preaching, because she would have given me a stare so stern that I would have been terrified to close my eyes, let alone fall down and pretend to sleep. But she didn't preach in her own church often. So passing out was the perfect plan. It excused me from running around, from sitting and singing and speaking in tongues. I could just take a nice nap. And if at the end of the night, my grandmother was feeling forgiving, she would scoop me up off the floor with her Bible tucked under her arm. If she was feeling less than forgiving, I'd get a rough toe in my ribs and a short, the Holy Spirit left, get up. The point is, is that my grandmother was there day in and day out in a way my mother hadn't been. By the late 80s, my mother's alcoholism had become full-blown. But no matter what was going on around me, Nana was there, rolling oranges along the table before cutting a hole in the top for me to drink, showing me how to make biscuits, cutting the circles with an overturned water glass and flour on my cheeks, asking me to brush her hair and joking that the mole on the back of her head was her third eye to keep a better eye on you. More than that, she took me seriously. When I told her I couldn't sleep because all the mouths and the photographs of my room had kept moving, whispering silently to each other, she helped me take them down. When I said that I couldn't fall asleep because there was a demon who stood in the doorway, a figure with red eyes that I called the Quaker Oat Man because of the tall, brimmed hat that he wore, she began to sleep with me. She hid plastic eggs in the yard every Easter. She bought me new clothes for school and the holidays. She threw me birthday parties with big cakes. She ran my baths and took me to school. She had to be the one. When my father went to prison and my mother moved us back to Nashville to live with her parents, my mom got really sick. Something about this move wasn't good for her. The drinking was nearly nonstop. Sometimes she would disappear for days. Once when the officers came to my grandmother's house to arrest my mother for driving under the influence of liquor, I'd been outside, and so I had a front row view of the spectacle. It was the end of July. I'd been running around in the yard all day in the endless Tennessee heat, chasing dragonflies and the new German Shepherd puppy. I spotted the black and white patrol car rolling up the driveway. My mother had been standing on the patio, smoking, talking to my aunt when they called out her name. She would have been 26 at the time. As the officers began to read her rights and cuff her, she resisted. She shoved one of them, adding an assault charge to the DUI. Because she was drunk when this was happening, her resistance increased in proportion to their efforts until she dissolved into something like a wildcat, screaming, twisting in their arms. At the sound of her scream, I'd bolted barefoot across the yard trying to reach her. This scream, as it always did, caused a terrified, visceral reaction in me. I had to reach her. I had to make sure she was okay. And I'd covered a lot of ground, making it all the way to the fence 
Lifting the latch before someone had managed to grab me, I looked up. No, baby, my grandmother said. You stay with me. I went slack in her grip, unable to do anything but watch the car back out of the driveway and take my mother away. Then she released me, pulling grass from my hair. Nana told me not to worry, that my mother would be back. She had to tell me this because I'd seen my father arrested, hauled away, and he hadn't come back. And she knew not knowing where my mother was would make me restless, that putting me to bed that night would be nearly impossible. But she would try. She would lay down beside me all night if she had to, and that mattered. It wasn't always good between us, my grandmother and I. There were many years when she and I didn't talk, throughout my twenties mostly, when I was angry and furious that she kept taking Joe's side, kept excusing him no matter what he did, who he hurt. The ashtray incident had been a deal-breaker for me. Yet in the last years of her life, I'd softened. I would ask to talk to her when I called my mom, ask her how she was doing. Four months before Nana died, I called her on her birthday, just to tell her that I loved her. And I'm glad I did. It's July 24th. I look at my list, trying to decide which suitcase I should take. It's Friday, and Katie and I are texting back and forth, making our final plans. I tell her that Kim and I will arrive on Monday, that we can go to my grandmother's house on Tuesday and get whatever we need, whatever we can find. And I wonder aloud what it will be like, walking through those doors after 19 years of being away. All of this is barely decided when I get a notification on my phone. A simple text that says, Inmate Release Alert, with the day's date and time and my uncle's name. Almost two weeks before his trial date, Joe has been set free. This episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir, to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.